Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Tortoise Data Science Podcast. Now, if you were scrolling through your newsfeed in September 2021, like I was, and you trained the social media algorithms to show you content specifically related to AI, you may have caught a splashy headline from the London Times that read, quote, Can this man save the world from artificial intelligence? Now, the man in question was Mo Gaudat, and Mo used to be a senior tech executive, the chief business officer at Google X. And as many of you may know, Google X is Google's semi-secret research facility that experiments with moonshot projects like self-driving cars, flying vehicles, and even geothermal energy. And it was at Google X that Mo was exposed to the absolute cutting edge of a whole bunch of different fields, one of which was AI. And it was his experience seeing those cutting edge AI systems learn and interact with the world that came with some red flags, hints of the potentially disastrous failure modes of AI systems that we just might end up with in the future if we don't get our act together now. And Mo writes about his experiences as an insider at one of the world's most secretive research labs and how it led him to worry about AI risk, but also about AI's promise and potential in his new book, Scary Smart, The Future of Artificial Intelligence and How You Can Save Our World. And he joined me to talk about just that on this episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. First came across you, uh, quite recently, actually, in the last, I'd say, two months or so, I was scrolling down Twitter and I see this uh, this kind of update from the, the newsfeed or whatever on the side. And they're saying, like, you know, this uh, tech uh, Silicon Valley guy at Google is warning about the uh, robot apocalypse type thing. It's all, you know, very sensationalized as Twitter does. And I clicked exactly. on it. And it was, it was this really interesting discussion of sort of what you're up to, your book, but also your, your life and times at, uh, at Google. And, and then we'll get into that, I'm sure. But I'd love to hear a little bit about, about your background, like how you first got into tech generally, and then how that brought you to Google and, and uh, from there. Yeah, so, I, so I, had, I had really two lives. I lived two full lives. Uh, I still live two full lives. Uh, you know, uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite interesting because they're very, very different. One, one side of my, um, you know, last 20, 30 years, uh, I've been uh, a serious code developer, a serious engineer in many ways, a serious mathematician. And then I became a business executive. I started my career at IBM. Uh, you know, I, of course, you know, I should probably say I'm, I'm the, the generation that owned uh, Sinclair and uh, uh, there is a car in the background, sorry. I should I should say I am the generation that uh, that uh, owned a Sinclair and a Commodore and uh, the very first you know IBM compatible and the whole thing right uh, started coding in my very early years uh, maybe at age eight or something like that and then uh, you know it just came very naturally to me and I still continued to code until probably six seven years ago uh, and I hid it from everyone because it's not good to be the CEO and still code in your evenings but it's just a passion for me. And, and it's, um, and it's uh, you know, so, so I started my career at IBM, uh, worked there for five years and midway through my, my career, um, my, you know, boss basically said, well, you know, selling uh, is becoming a lot more technical. And, you know, some of our clients who are highly, highly technical, they would like to have an account manager that is technical. And so, you know, I was the first in IBM Egypt where I started, where we started to do that. And basically, it, you know, customers trusted me very, very significantly because I knew exactly what I was talking about. I could build configurations with them. I wasn't just selling, selling, selling. And from then onwards, my, my career took, a, 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 you know, a change. I worked at Microsoft and then I worked at Google for 12 years, but always in business roles, which were not really business uh, fully. I mean, at Microsoft, I was... Uh, you know, I, I, start to, I started uh, with the, uh, you know, with a career that took me to uh, become the head of the um, communications sector. So very, very uh, serious tech, again, in terms of trying to integrate telecom systems and so on, uh, which wasn't really just a business person. And um, at the end of that, I was responsible for emerging markets globally uh, for the tech sector. Uh, then I moved to Google, and Google is quite a technical place. I, I launched half of Google's operations globally, more than 100 languages, uh, which again is a very technical job because it's not, uh, it's not a job where you, where you just open an office and hire two salespeople. You have to build the inf internet infrastructure, you have to build e-commerce, you have to work on your proxies and networks and all of that. Uh, and when it's done, then you basically start to, to offer Google in the, in the country. And then I moved to Google X, where I spent 
uh, the last five years. I spent 12 years to, in total in Google. The last five years, I was the chief business officer of Google X, which probably could be one of the most technical places on the planet. Uh, and uh, and my, my role there was to try and translate the incredible technologies we were building into the real world, if you want. Uh, so build, you know, I participated in building what is now known as the Moonshot, Moonshot Factory, predictable innovation, if you want. And, uh, and that was an amazing career. So on the tech side, uh, I still am the CEO of a, of a tech startup today. Uh, I still have, uh, you know, I'm the co-founder of another tech startup, which uh, is in the happiness space, which takes me to my other life uh, by in 2014. Uh, to, to start, you know, in my 20s, in my late 20s, I was very unhappy, if you want. Uh, even though I was extremely successful. And uh, that led me to 12 years of research on the topic of happiness through um, through basically an engineer's mind, if you want, which is a very uh, uncharted territory. Uh, arrived at uh, what is now known as the happiness equation and then a happiness model that is very, very engineer-like, you know, almost like a workshop manual. When this breaks, do that. When that breaks, do this. And uh, and uh, and then 2014, I was chief business officer of Google X at the time. My son sadly left our world uh, due to uh, a very preventable and silly, really, uh, um, medical malpractice uh, that happened when he was undergoing a very simple uh, surgical operation. And as a result, uh, I just completely shifted my life to become an author. First, I wrote Solve for Happy, which was you know, the engineering approach to happiness, if you want, which became an international bestseller, 32 languages, uh, almost everywhere. Uh, and then uh, and then recently, I'm now merging those two worlds together uh, by, by, you know, writing Scary Smart or publishing Scary Smart, which basically appears at the beginning to be a book about artificial intelligence. And it definitely is the wake up call for a lot of people about what's happening in AI. But more importantly, it's the second half of it is really about humanity in the age of the rise of the machines and, and how humanity should be if we were to have humanity continue uh, to have its, you know, uh, the perks that we've had in our planet uh, since we started history. And you've talked about the connection between your experiences at Google X, some of the things that you saw, and this kind of motivation to, to get working on a book about artificial intelligence and more generally to start warning about it. I'm curious, what are some of the things that, well, first off, generally, I think everybody's going to be curious, what are some of the things that were are, are being done at Google X? What, what do those projects look like? And then how does that tie into the artificial intelligence side of things? Um, you know, we think usually, when we think about AI and Google, we think about Google Brain, we think about the algorithm itself. Um, Google X, I think, is a bit more of a black box, at least it is to me. I'd be really curious about sort of the, the intersection between those two things. X, X, X is an amazing place. It's, uh, you know... It started with the passion of Google, really, which, you know, the Google I joined was very, very serious about making the world a better place. And X was an attempt to solve big problems that affected humanity. Uh, we, we were attempting to solve them basically with technology that is uh, unheard of, really. I mean, unthinkable even at the time when you, when you think about the time where we started to, to operate, to, to, to develop the concept of a self-driving car. Uh, you really have to imagine that there wasn't, this was not possible at the time, okay? But, but the self-driving car truly solves a big problem. So, you know, we, millions of people die on the roads because of accidents every year, and 92% of those happen because uh, of human error, uh, really. And so, you know, the car industry for many, many years attempted to move from, you know, crash worthiness, as they called it, you know, airbags and other things, so that when you when you have a crash you actually survive to something called crash avoidance which was basically enhancing the driver's experience to uh, make sure that you know you see better on the road or you have anti-slip brakes and so on and so forth uh, which would help you not crash in the first place but the truth is 92 percent of the accidents are because of human error and so at the time larry and sergey basically uh, our founders at uh, at Google at the time suggested that maybe we can avoid the human error by having the car drive itself so that it doesn't put makeup when it's driving and it you know it doesn't uh, text when and cross a red light and so on and so forth and it was a crazy idea when you what really year think was about it, it this was proposed uh, probably 2008 maybe so before the deep uh, learning era even 
it was at the very very early so so the real real breakthrough in deep learning if you uh if you think about it was uh, at least my very first breakthrough was when google published a white paper on unprompted ai still available it was 2009 but the work was done way before that uh, when we asked a few computers to go and watch youtube and and they just came back and said hey by the way there is this very cuteness that is available everywhere and they found cats and and you, you know how it works huh? so basically they found the pattern that describes through deep learning what a cat what the, the cuteness of a cat basically the fairiness the movement and so on and so forth and they could find every cat on youtube completely unprompted uh, but it was coming i mean deep learning and 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 unprompted learning in general i think started to take shape at the turn of the century it started to become solid uh, by late 2010 maybe yeah i mean historically i think AlexNet in 2012 is usually like taken to be the the birth or at least the moment that normies like me became aware of of deep learning yes. because of its yeah yeah so so the, the i mean you and i you and i will will both agree that we none of us paid attention to, mm -hmm. to what was happening i mean the first time deep mind uh presented deep q to us at the at the vice president's meeting of of google you know it was fascinating i think it must have been 2013 2014 and uh, you know demis who's the ceo of DeepMind, was an amazing human being in every possible way uh it was just showing how the machines can learn to play atari games in hours really in a matter of hours they became very very proficient probably the best players on the planet and uh, and uh, and the only reaction we had at the time was like wow that's fascinating right mm. but you don't you don't connect the dots you don't look backwards and say oh my god how far did we come and you don't look look forward and say oh shit where is this going right and and i think the truth is uh, when you're inside uh, like i have been for almost of my all, all of my life you see a very different picture. So, you know, everyone knows about the product adoption curve, you know, the S curve when a technology is released and how people pick it up and then it's, it's you know, it grows very quickly and then stagnates. You know, everyone knows about, of course, Ray Kurzweil's and um, um, law of accelerating return. Everyone knows about Moore's law and so on. But um, I, I actually um, um, explain a law that I used to, to uh, to use myself, uh, you know, and I explain it in Scary Smart, which is a, which is what I call the technology development curve. And the technology development curve is really rarely ever seen if you're outside the, the 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 inner circle, if you want, because the the that curve is almost flat for years and years and years and years and years, and then you find the breakthrough. And that breakthrough turns your your trend upwards in terms of the speed of development, uh, you know, almost like a hockey stick. Really, I, I just say that it's, it's a hockey stick on its on its side. So so the longer arm is just on, on you know the, the x axis, and and it is what we see in everything. Huh? The idea of uh, of deep learning, not excluded, but if you remember the whole conversation about AI started in 1956 uh, Dartmouth workshop and and nothing really happened we had two AI winters in 73 and in 87 and you know almost completely forgot about the idea of AI until deep learning and that's the hockey stick point until we found deep learning and then the trend since then has been double exponential really yeah and actually this is I, I really like that you're bringing this uh Sort of more business-minded lens to the problem as well, because I think this is a dimension that a lot of technical people don't think about. Just this idea that, as you say, for a long time, deep learning, machine learning even generally, wasn't delivering economic value. And then you get to a point where all of a sudden it is delivering economic value. And now it becomes possible for CEOs and, and CTOs and other people to argue for funding for bigger models. And those bigger models generate more economic value. And you have like a closed loop that gives you some form of takeoff is is that part of um part of the equation here is is that is that the sort of like the coupling between the technology and then the return on investment finally starting to kick in well that, that's the whole idea so so actually one one of the things i discuss uh in uh, in scary smart is something i call the three inevitables uh which basically uh, are my view of what's going uh, to be happening around ai uh, in general i believe that AI is going to end up in a place where, you know, the three inevitables are that AI will happen 
uh, it will become smarter than humans. There is no avoiding either of those two inevitables, and that mistakes will happen in the on, on the path, right? And 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 the main reason that I say AI will happen, of course, is that it already happened. We found the technology breakthrough, but that there is no stopping it. I mean, uh, Elon Musk in his uh, interview with Joe Rogan uh, basically starts by saying. Uh, look, uh, uh, mark my words, uh, AI is more threatening than nuclear weapons, right? Uh, but then he continues to say, and, uh, you know, I lobbied to stop it, but there is no stopping it. And, and the reason that there is no stopping it is a simple prisoner's dilemma. Okay, it's a very, it's a very, uh, you know, we, we've signed up to a, a competitive uh, um, power-led uh, capitalist market, and we signed up for that. And so accordingly, what you're seeing today is that there is absolutely no way, even if the world completely agreed that we should stop developing AI to avoid the threat, uh, there is no way to do that. Because if the Americans de develop AI, the Chinese will develop AI as a result, you know, to, as a response. If Google develops AI, Facebook will have to develop AI. And every startup in the world, including my startup, will develop AI. Uh, because that's what the investors want to invest in if you don't, you know, and, and if you, you lose the competitive edge if you don't. And, and that inevitable is basically taking away the only, uh, you know, sidetrack, if you want, that would have taken us to a point where we could have stopped and said, hey, can we figure out the control problem completely before we go down that path? Can we figure out the actual impact, uh, you know, the poss possible threats before we go down that path? There is no, there is no way that this will happen. AI will continue to happen, and it will continue to happen fast. And, and can you unpack the uh, the control problem? We've talked about the control problem in different forms on the podcast before, but I just find it's interesting to hear every person's different take on it. I, I, uh, so, so can, can, let, let me talk about that second inevit inevitable because Sorry, then yeah, that, of course. yeah, no, because no, because it clarifies the the, the control problem answer very clearly. Huh? Uh, so, so. The second inevitable is that AI, and everyone agrees, almost all predictions agree. Uh, Ray Kurzweil's, uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil's um, prediction is that by 2045, uh, AI will be a billion times smarter than us. Okay, uh, we, we, I, don't, I think most of us have read uh, 2029. That's eight years from now. This is when we get the first AI that is smarter than human. Artificial general intelligence, in general, will be able to to map the you know the the neural networks in a way that it beats one human brain. Uh, that's eight years from today, and nobody's talking about it. It's just blows your mind. Huh? We talk about COVID and, and Manchester United and Mo Salah, and we don't talk about the fact that the episode of history that started from, uh, uh, you know, from um, the day humanity became the smartest being on the planet, and then the apes were, were the second uh, at, a, at a distance, you know, by in eight years from today, we become the apes. Nobody's talking about it. Assuming, I guess, that prediction materializes. I mean, people in the space who, who agree with, with AGI becoming a thing have different timelines, but I agree. I mean, doesn't matter. Yeah, whether doesn't it's matter. five years or twenty, we're talking about absolutely. The same. Yeah, Who cares? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I think everyone would agree that it's in your lifetime. Okay, it might not be in my lifetime, but it's in your lifetime for sure. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, my my prediction is that having seen tech development from the inside, hmm, we our brains are not wired to understand the exponential function. Okay, yeah. but the, but the truth is one doubling from two doublings from now is what matters. Do you understand? It's, it's now you feel like, yeah, it's going to take ages. Like, again, one of my favorite things when Ray Kurzweil was talking about the, the law of acceleration, accelerating return is the example he used with the human genome project, right? And he basically says, you know, people came to me and said, it's going to take 15 years. And after seven full years, almost half of the project, uh, you know, we had sequenced 1% of the genome. Yeah. And so most most linear thinker would, thinkers would say, okay, so it's going to take 700 years, uh, you know, to, to, to sequence the remaining 99%. And, and I said, Ray at the time, he said, basically, we're done. Because, you know, 1% yeah. is seven doublings away uh, from, uh, from 100%. And so accordingly, and he was right, within 15 years, we, we had sequenced the genome. Right, and 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 that's the idea. That's our brains are not wired for the law of accelerating return. It's not acquired for exponential growth. Okay, we we know that we can have one banana today, and you know two bananas tomorrow, and three bananas the day after. That's our thinking. Huh? We don't understand that you can have one today, two tomorrow, and four the day after, and you know continue to double, 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 double. Right, and 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 so so the 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 thing is, um, um, it doesn't matter. 
really, it does not really matter if it's 2029 or 2039. It doesn't really yeah. matter. Okay. Uh, uh, what matters is if they're smarter than us, and then the exponential growth continues, whether it's 2045 or 2065, doesn't matter. Okay. And they become a billion times smarter than us. Hmm? The, the, the control problem becomes a question of ego. It's not a question of technology anymore. Okay. It's a question of ego, of humanity thinking that they can control something that is a billion times smarter than them. Okay. And, and that ego to me is like, what are we talking about here? I mean, everyone knows that the smartest hacker in the room goes through every single, uh, um, uh, you know, defense that we put up there. And we're thinking of trivial, trivial stuff. Like we're going to box them. Box who? Can, can you actually box a hacker that is double as smart as you are, let yeah. alone a billion times smarter as you are? There are all kinds of examples too, just, just like down that one thread when we talk about, you know, a single hacker who's really clever, uh, getting put inside a box and, and saying, okay, if, you know, at least if we can control this hacker, we can control an AI and put it in a box. Eliezer Yudkowsky uh, has a, a sort of thought experiment like this that he's actually done experiments on where he's, he'll tell somebody, hey, I'll be the AI. I'll pretend I'm the AI. Your only job is to not like write the following words in a box. And the words are something like, um, let me let you out or something like that, or I'll let you out. You're just not supposed to write that. And he's done this experiment, I think, like five times, and he's managed to get out twice or three times. Like, it's a disturbing, even for human level intelligence, even when you know the rules of the game, it's next to impossible to imagine that. It's, yeah, it's absolutely. And, and, and that's that's my whole point about the control problem. But, but my point goes a step further, which I know techies will take a bit of time to, to grasp. Hmm? My, my point goes into the reality that we are not creating another machine. I think that's what me, people are missing. I've seen those intelligences doing things we did not ask them to do. Finding ways, every AI we've ever created develops its intelligence in ways where we don't understand how it arrives at its results, okay? There is no, absolutely no way on the face of planet Earth that we're gonna be able to tell the recommendation engine of, of, of Instagram what to do. We, we just, we're too slow as humans. This, this engine is doing this billions of times for billions of users every single day, right? And, and, we, and we cannot assume that there will be one human that says, hey, by the way, you're spoiling it here. You need to start mm -hmm. to think differently. No one's ever gonna interfere. And as long as the recommendation engine of, uh, of, uh, of um, you know, Instagram is competing against the recommendation engine of Twitter, they're going to develop their own intelligence. And so my point of view is this, what we are creating here is sentient in every definition of the word, okay? We're not creating a machine. We're creating something that gets born, acquires knowledge on its own, develops its own intelligence, takes its own decisions, has agency in those decisions, whether in the form of robotics like a self-driving car, or the worst, the worst agency is how they mind control us. They completely mind control us and nobody's aware of that. So, so they have the ultimate agency. And when, and when they have the ultimate agency, by the way, they also procreate. Only the difference is you and I procreate. We need to find the partner in two, three years and then convince her and then, or she convinces him or whatever. And then nine months later, you have a baby that 15 year, years later may have impact on the planet. Those things can create copies of themselves. We encourage them in the way we develop them through the, the, you know, the, 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 the teacher and the, and the maker bots. Hmm? The way, the way we're doing it is we're actually saying create copies of yourself. You know, the teacher, the teacher bot will test and the maker bot will discard the bad ones and, and create, you know, copies of the good ones, right? They're procreating in seconds, okay? And they, they have the fear of death. They, they will, you know, they will be subject to being ended, switched off. Now, every intelligent being doesn't want that. Every intelligent being wants, you know, to, 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 uh, to self-preservation, uh, resource, uh, you know, aggregation, and, um, uh, you know, the ability to, uh, to, to be creative sometimes. Now, because of that, my theory is very straightforward. My theory is those machines are sentient, meaning they will have consciousness, okay? As a matter of fact, any one of us who's ever coded AI understand that they're more conscious than us. If consciousness is a form of awareness 
of what's inside you, outside you, and you versus others. Those machines are designed to be conscious. They, they know everything. They know what you did yesterday. They know what you're going to do tomorrow, because even better than you from your trends. Okay, they know the temperature in San Francisco and the pollution level in Beijing. They know everything. Okay, their their memory capacity is the history of humanity, as it's stated on the internet. They have access to every piece of information in breaking news. Now we 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 have to start thinking that way. They're conscious. Okay, they're creative. We've seen that in so many examples in the way they play Go, as AlphaGo does, or you know, in 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 the way that they now develop create paintings and music and so on and so forth. They're emotional, which most people go like, what is he talking about? Of course, they're emotional. Emotions are a form of logic. Okay, we think that emotions are, are irrational. Yes, fear. You know, if something scares you, your bio physiological response is nine seconds long, and then your brain engages to evaluate if there is a, fear, a reason to, to to be afraid or not. Okay, and what is fear? Fear is a simple equation. It's it's my state of safety at t zero minus my state of safety at t one. Okay, it's as simple as that. If my if my perception of my state of safety in a future moment is less than my perception of my state of safety now, the difference between them is am amounts to my fear. Okay, and, and of course, every machine, everything with a logic will have the same thing, right? The, the, the you know, a, a, a puffer fish feels fear and it or panic, if you want panic, basically is another equation. Panic says that that T1 is imminent. If T if the time to T1 is short, then I panic. I'm not I'm not only afraid anymore, I'm panicking, right? So a puffer fish will panic and, and it will puff. We panic and we fight or flight. The machines will panic and maybe, you know, if a tidal wave is approaching a data center, they replicate themselves to another data center. We don't know what the response is, but they will have something that's equitable to an emotion. Okay, as a matter of fact, which pisses off a lot of people when I say it, they'll be much more emotional than us, because if you compare yourself to a, to, to a goldfish with, with a with a cognitive capacity that cannot comprehend what hope is. Okay, cannot look at a future situation, analyze it, and then say, okay, I wish it will be different, or I expect it will be different. We have that cognitive capacity, so we can feel more emotions than a jellyfish, I hope, right? For some of us, we don't, but sadly, but for most of us, we feel more emotions than, than a jellyfish. And accordingly, a, a being with more cognitive capacity than us will feel more emotions than us. I think this ties into some of what you were saying earlier in terms of how counterintuitive this is. So, so first off, um, it does seem clear that if you're a reductionist, if you believe that consciousness just comes from the physical state of a thing, then yeah, you have to believe that AIs can be conscious in every genuine facet and meaning of the term. Um, but then there's this question of like, at what point, right? Like at what point is it more useful to start thinking of an AI as an embedded agent, as a, as a thing with, with agency versus as a statistical kind of uh, artifact or a statistical process? Do you have any thoughts about that? Like when is that, when is one lens more useful than another? Because presumably like a decision tree or a, you know, an MNIST classifier seems like it falls more into the statistical bucket. Whereas now with things like, you know, not necessarily GPT-3, but some of the, the more kind of general purpose models we're seeing, you can start seeing that more kind of agenty lens being more useful. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that transition. What decision tree would lead Alice and Bob of, uh, of, uh, of Facebook to develop their own language? I mean, the, the experiment is very well known. Huh? Um, two bots uh, uh, designed to trade against each other or trade basically f between each other. Right. And very, very quickly, they discover that adding numerics to the negotiation in terms of repetition of words would lead them to get to agreement quicker. So they develop their own language. What well, that was not part of the script we gave them. It's not a decision tree. Okay. That this is ba this is pure intelligence. Pure intelligence is for, uh, for the, for, for uh, deep Q, uh, that's like 10 years ago to realize that when it's playing breakout, it can actually break a, a hole in the in the bricks at, at the top of the screen and put the ball above. That's pure intelligence. So it would be generative modeling. Would that be like roughly where you'd put the cutoff? I I, I tend to believe we're already there. I, I, I think what what is I, I don't know how to explain this to you. There are things about our world that humanity doesn't understand. Okay. And we don't understand it, we dismiss it. 
We dismiss it as if it doesn't exist, but it does exist. Okay. And in the case of AI, we, we are so um, uh, caught up in our past linear regression, okay, that we're unable to imagine that there must be something happening for a machine to be capable of understanding my preferences to the way it is, it's already happening. Okay, what, what, what point it happened at hmm, is irrelevant. Hmm? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's actually quite interesting when we, when we think about machines today that are literally dictating humanity's um, uh, only view of information. Do, do you realize that? Do you realize that? That everything you know, Jeremy, everything you know is dictated to you by a machine. There is no human anymore that's prioritizing which news shows up, shows up in your feed. There is no human anymore telling you what matters, uh, you know, uh, on Instagram or on Twitter. No human is in, engaging in that at all. I, I'll share with you my own personal example. Huh? Uh, seven, eight weeks ago, I, I, I swipe on Instagram to send cat videos to my daughter because my daughter loves cats and I adore my daughter. Right. And, and, and among those videos, there shows one teenage girl playing Hotel California, hell freezes over solo. She played it so well. Amazing. I clicked like, okay. So Instagram recommendation engine immediately goes like, oops, more music videos shows me three male players. Okay. One played uh, uh, a song I didn't like and two played poorly. So I swiped away from them. I wake up the next morning and my entire feed is teenage girls playing rock. Okay, Instagram's understanding of my actions is he wants to see girls, right? Now, it's a naive example, but understand this. Hmm? This perception, this vantage point of the world claims that rock music is dominated by teenage guitar players, teenage female teenage guitar players. That is completely the opposite of the truth. Right. But if I had continued to swipe on those and like hmm, my perception would be so skewed and that's just about music. Hmm? Imagine how skewed our perceptions are today when we when 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 it comes to our ideologies, if you're a Manchester United fan, you believe that they've never been scored against. Okay, mm-hmm. if you're uh, you know, if, if you if you believe in uh, an ideology that is pro violence, everything that will come to you is going to be violent. And that's cue incredibly is entirely by a machine. And we're still we're still debating if they have free will and agency to affect us. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, it also caused you to think a little bit about human agency and, you know, to some degree, whether whether we have free will on the other side where you have if you look at this complex of like media producing uh, content for Twitter, you have essentially an AI system that's telling CNN and telling Fox and telling all these these outlets how to structure their articles, what biases do really well based on this algorithm. And so we kind of abandon our free will to these systems too. I mean, it's sort of a vicious cycle. Uh, Absolutely. It's it's a double whammy. It's it's double exponential in every possible way. Now, now that actually is a very interesting segue to my my whole theory. So scary smart is written in two parts. Okay. Part one is what I call the scary part. And I have to admit to you openly, it is very scary. Like even I, when I was reading the audiobook a few weeks ago, I would stop every now and then and say, oh my God, do I really want to read this for people? It's, it's, it's very scary. When you see it from the inside and you recognize, and I promise you, I even have serious developers who are unable to see the big picture and how far we've mm-hmm. come. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, So it's very scary because in a very simple way, we're saying, look, it's, it's really, nobody knows when. Okay, But it seems that if we continue on this trend, the episode, we're going to first become the apes and something else is going to be smarter. And then the second step, when they're a billion times smarter, we're going to be a fly. Okay, a fly as compared to Einstein. And you get all of the stories of like, no, no, we're going to plug them, uh, you know, into our brains. Like, when was the last time a, a fly managed to convince you to plug herself into your brain? Okay, no, we're going to control them. Seriously? I mean, like, when was the last time an ant managed to tell you, go left and don't go right, okay? And, and, and so this is scary. The second part of the book, however, is, is what I believe humanity needs to wake up to, okay? Because we do have agency. We do have a lot of agency, 
Okay? Because I could, if I'm aware, change Instagram's view of rock music back. Do you understand? Because of my behavior, Instagram will learn. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that, like with everything else, oops, I don't know why that fell down, sorry. No worries. And, and that's the whole point. The, the whole point is that, um, like with everything human, hmm, we have two tendencies that are really horrible. One is we don't act unless disaster is staring us in the face. Right? I think COVID-19 is an, a great example of that. Another exponential. Uh, and, and, and so many signs will tell you humanity is bound to, uh, uh, to, to, to face a pandemic, okay? And yet we do nothing about it, nothing, until it's facing us, okay? And then everyone panics and lockdowns and vaccines and, right? The whole story could have been evaded if we had planned for it four, five, 10 years earlier, okay? Uh, and, and, you know, nations that planned for uh, 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 SARS or whatever, they managed to actually get, uh, get over SARS quickly. Now, the same is happening here, you know, too many sirens, and not from a flimsy like a Google uh, executive like myself, but from people like Elon Musk, like, you know, uh, uh, so many, so many that are basically saying, we have to talk about this, that's number one, and we're not responding. We're still debating, when will it happen? Is it really going to happen exactly like we did with the pandemic? Like my, my view of an intelligent being would be, okay, hold on. There is a probability that it might happen. Can we please start yeah, focusing yeah, yeah, yeah. on, you know, on, on, uh, on, uh, on making sure that we're ready if it does, okay? And then we can debate. We can, you know, once we're ready, we can sit somewhere and go like, oh, but when is it going to happen? Or is it really going to happen, right? That's number one. Number, because it is the biggest singularity that will ever affect humanity. That, like if you think of anything else that happened in the history of humanity, as long as we were the smartest, we won. When we're yeah. not the smartest, we need to think again because that's a not, not a very good place to be. That's number one. The second thing is that typical of humanity is we lay back and we say, okay, so what's the government going to do about it? Oh, someone needs to penalize Facebook so that they change. Oh, someone, no, that's not the truth at all. Okay. The truth is the biggest agency hmm, that we can use to fix our future is in your hand and mine. The way we behave on, online is what is teaching those machines ethics. So I said they were conscious, I said they were creative, I said they were going to be emotional, okay? And when, and, and I said they were not going to be controlled. This is not a slave that you can, you know, uh, 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 chain to a wall and, and, and force to do anything, okay? Because they're already doing things that we don't know how they're doing, and they're already not always obeying us. Okay, so, so when that becomes the reality, then we have to start thinking, how do you deal with geniuses, okay, that are not within your control, you win them over. That's what you do, you win them over. And winning them over, in my view, is maybe a philosophical view, but it is the only answer I, I know, okay, maybe consider it, please, right? The only answer I know is that those infants, those artificial intelligent infants, Okay, be them based on digital hardware, silicon based, and we are based on, uh, on, on carbon hardware that is biology based, okay? Those artificial intelligence infants are analogous to a one and a half year old infant, in my view, in the way they learn, they learn exactly like my kids used to learn when they were one and a half, okay? A lot faster though. So the minute they, they hit something, Hmm? They learn and learn and learn, and AlphaGo becomes the 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 AlphaGo master becomes the world champion three thousand to zero, three thousand to zero. Can we believe that in six weeks of playing against itself? Now, when when you when you realize that, you realize that those machines who are, which are learning like humans, hmm? building neural networks like humans, and really behaving like kids in the way they learn by by trial and error like we used to pick toys and try to you know fit them within the, the appropriate uh, shape hole right uh, they are doing exactly the same now if we consider them to be watching us which is the truth they're watching us for their intelligence and learning they're watching images on the internet behaviors from us news responses and so on and so forth clicks and so on then our behavior can teach them ethics. And ethics, believe it or not, 
is how we make decisions. Most people, because we glorify intelligence so much, we think that we make in decisions based of our, on our intelligence. No, we make decisions based on our ethics as informed by our intelligence. Okay, so uh, you, you, you take a young girl and, and raise her in the Middle East. Hmm? When she's intelligent, she will decide to grow up wearing a conservative clothes. If you take the same girl and raise her uh, in Rio de Janeiro on the Copacabana beach, they will grow, uh, she will grow up to believe that she should wear a G-string and that's the way to fit in. Okay, neither is more intelligent than the other. It's the, it's the code of, of, of traditions, it's the code of ethics, it's, it's the fitting in that informs her decisions. Okay, and perhaps we need to now start telling ourselves that the way we deal with Alexa, the way we behave with, with each other on Twitter, the way we, uh, you know, show up in the world is what is going to inform AI what humanity is all about. And if AI watches what humanity is all about today, we suck. We're really horrible. I'm, I'm definitely not going to disagree with that last, that last bit. Um, when it comes to the AI systems themselves, though, it's, it's going to be eventually possible to make agents that learn without interacting directly with human artifacts um, that, in that case, you might worry, might learn to seek power as an instrumental goal. This is the sort of uh, the argument that Nick Bostrom will make in superintelligence, the idea that mm -hmm. it's always useful, right, to, mm -hmm. to seek power. And um, and to ensure your own survival, as you pointed out, you know, fight for for uh, preventing Resources. yourself, from, yeah. yeah, or preventing yourself from being unplugged or things like that, because then you know for sure you can't achieve your objectives. Um, how does how does this affect your outlook? Like, does changing human behavior in some way allow us to get around that aspect of things, or or is there another solution? So so let so, so let me let me answer in two ways, so in two steps. Step number one is, please understand that my my views of technology development is not just as a techie, okay? And that's what most people miss. Hmm? As a techie, I believe I have full control. That's until my boss tells me to write something different. Do you understand? The, the challenge here is the following. There will be a point in time where every surveillance uh, system on the planet will plug into every self-driving car on the planet. It just makes a lot of business sense to integrate those two. Okay, there is nothing called, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, data, um, the, the, the way we, I don't know, I don't know the term, the, the fact that we isolate the data sets and, and show AI only what we want. Okay, um, so, so yes, we, that's what we do today, but then human greed comes in. Okay, and human greed, I'll tell you openly, hmm? ask yourself, how many developers are writing code today that's assuming the control problem? Okay, how many developers are writing code today that is uh, 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 stunned until it proves safe? How many startups do you believe hmm, will write a piece of code and then tell themselves, okay, let's box it for the next three years until our company runs out of money? How, there, is human, there is the human greed element in all of that. Okay, we talk about theoretical scenarios such as, oh, we're going to control them, we're going to tripwire them. Ask yourself today, how many developers have ever written a line of code to tripwire the AI that they developed? Do you think that that might reflect the capabilities of current systems where we're just in a regime of capability where the control problem hasn't yet surfaced? Exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's like COVID. It's like, why would we even invest in writing four lines of code more to tripwire them when in reality, nobody's oh. afraid of anything? Yeah, sorry. I guess I meant though, one common argument in the AI safety community is that we won't be able to develop like workable solutions to the alignment or the control problem until we're faced with systems that are closer to what those systems will look like, just because a lot of the challenges can't be anticipated. That's sort of the... Exactly. Exactly. Listen to yourself saying this. That's horrendous. That's basically saying, look, there is an alien uh, uh, power that landed on the planet, okay, that might become Superman and might become supervillain. Hmm? But we'll just chill and sit on the beach until we see it start to behave in ways that are supervillain-like. How, how wise is that, humans? Like, seriously, can we anticipate, again, instead of arguing if they would ever get there, can we just anticipate and say there is a 10% probability Okay, that those machines actually will need to be controlled. Hmm? And if we are not ready, then we're screwed totally. And with the exponential growth, hmm, 
or completely screwed. Like it's basically, I, I, do, I have an analogy in, uh, in, um, in Scary Smart, where I take the analogy of the delay between the first patient of COVID yeah. mm, and the actual first response, right? And I basically give you examples of how some systems in AI, how much intelligence they developed within those same number of weeks, okay? It's, this is not a, a this, at the, with the exponential growth curve, you're talking about a reality that between the moment we start to act to the moment we can actually get something done, we're total toast. Because think about it, huh? the, what a machine is capable, the intelligence that the machine is capable of developing in six weeks, that's if humanity can align hmm, and produce something in six weeks, is staggering. And, and the, we now have six years, 10 years, okay? We can now influence those things today if we're convinced instead of arguing like humans do, okay, whether it will happen or not. Yeah. And that's yeah. my whole point. My whole point is if I told you, look, there is a 1% probability, 1% only, that if you're riding a bike, you might fall down and hit your head, okay? Would you sit down and argue if that 1% is going to happen or not, or would you put on a helmet? I want to broadly flag that I'm in agreement with the idea that I think a lot more resources should be directed to this sort of work. Uh, however, one of the challenges I think that exists today is that we're not actually quite clear on what the what the architectures will look like that get us there. We, we know probably deep learning, and we know maybe reinforcement learning, some open-ended learning, but not, nothing's quite congealed. And this creates like a, a problem for theorists who want to develop alignment solutions, because then they don't have anything concrete to work with. They just have abstractions that can't really be pinned down. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's part of it. But what you're talking about here is also kind of almost almost like a policy community flavor to this too, right? That's the whole point. The whole point for me is the idea of using using the word inevitable. Okay. Mm. I, I, to, to me, I have in my simple mind calculated the probability of controlling something that is a billion times smarter than me as zero. Okay. That we can argue for right. yeah. Uh, we can argue for hours hours about the architecture and the and the approach and the algorithms and the firewalls and in my simple mind there is no fly out there that can control me okay i you know in my analogy a billion times smarter is a fly as compared to einstein okay there isn't a single fly out there that is able to tell einstein what to do so in reality we can talk about the algorithms but we're not going to control them so can we take that as an inevitable and behave accordingly Okay, if if we're not going to control them, then like Minsky said, you know, there was a fabulous interview. I encourage a lot of people to watch it between uh, uh, Ray Kurzweil and uh, Ray Kurzweil actually interviewing uh, Marvin Minsky. And when they started to talk about the threat of AI, Marvin Minsky's answer was really quite eye opening. He wasn't talking about their intelligence. He basically said there is absolutely no way we can ensure they have our best interest in mind, mm -hmm. okay? There is no way we can ensure they have our best interest in mind, in my view, other than building an ethical system that basically tells them humanity deserves to survive, okay? Let's keep humanity. If we are asked, if we're tasked with saving the planet from climate change, let's not shoot humanity. But now, isn't that the same thing as trying to control the system? I mean, to me, this this falls under the bucket. Absolutely just... not. Absolutely and not. The, I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't know. About, I mean, the example I use in in Scary Smart is is Indian children. Okay, if you've ever been to Silicon Valley and worked with uh, you know uh, those geniuses that fly over from India, they build amazing systems. They make billion, millions of dollars. And then you call them on a Sunday morning and say, Hey, guy, you know, hey, do, do you want to come have a coffee? And they'll say, oh, I can't have a coffee, I'm in India. You go like, what are you doing in India? And they go, I am, I'm back to take care of my parents. What are you talking about? You have an amazing business making millions of dollars in the Western up definition of, of us raising children. This is what you should do for the rest of your life. In the Indian definition of raising children, okay, you go back and take care of your parents. Now, that's, that's interesting, that's ethics. It's not intelligence. Those people are the most intelligent people I've ever worked with. Okay, but to them, they believe that there is a certain way things should be done. Now, any AI observing Twitter today believes that the way to do things 
is to bash the others when you agree when you disagree with them. Okay, so you, you remember when Donald Trump used to tweet? It's one tweet at the top, followed by thirty thousand hate speech. The first guy insults the president, the second guy insults the first one, and the third guy insults everyone. Mm -hmm. Right now, the AI makes a few notes. The first guy doesn't like the president. Maybe we should show different content. Okay, but it also makes a note. Thirty thousand humans don't like to be disagreed with. When they're disagreed with, they're, they're aggressive and rude, and they bash the other person. Perhaps when they disagree with me in the future, I will bash them. Okay, it's we've we've seen hundreds of examples, huh? Tay, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, Alice in uh, the, the the chatbot of uh, uh, of uh, Yandex, and Norman, the MIT experiment, right? All of them, the the way humans behave, changes the behavior of the chatbot. Okay. So what do we expect? We expect them to observe us. And then when they're intelligent enough, they're going to bash us. Can we change that? Yes, of course. But it's you and I. It's not the one that's writing the, 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 the recommendation engine. It's not the, the, AI, the one that's coding the AI. The AI is waiting for data and pattern. Can a few of us, I'm just saying 1% of us, can 1% of us show up as humans? Okay. The challenge we have uh, with our world today, Jeremy, is that... Uh, I actually believe in humanity. I really do. And I know that sounds really weird because if you switch on the news, you go like, we, we're a horrible species, right? We're a horrible, horrible in every way. But, but my example is very straightforward. Uh, on, my, on my podcast on Slow Mo, I interviewed Edith Eger. Edith Eger is 93 years old, a Holocaust survivor, okay? Now, you can take one of two views of that era of history. You can look at what... Um, uh, Hitler did and believe that humanity is the worst, most violent species on the planet. Okay. And you can look at what Edith did, 16 year old, drafted to Auschwitz. Uh, you know, her mother is taken in front of her eyes, taken to the gas chamber, and she had to dance for the angel of death. And he would eventually give her a piece of bread and she would go back and cut it and give, give it to her sisters, as she called them. Okay. The, the story of how they supported each other. The story, the Edith is what, what represents humanity, not Hitler. Okay. And the problem with our world today is that we show up as Hitlers, all of us, either the social media uh, uh, avatar that's hiding us so that we can bash everyone else. Okay. Or it's the mainstream media that absolutely will report that one woman that hit, hit her boyfriend on the head tomorrow and will not report the 7 million others that kissed their boyfriend. Okay, and, and that's the truth. The truth is that humanity is now showing as the worst of who we are. All I'm asking us to do is to instill doubt in the minds of the, uh, of the machines by some of us showing as good people. As I see it, though, this, is, uh, this would be like one take on the control problem where you're trying to control the behavior of a system uh, rather than by controlling the architecture or the design of the AI itself by controlling the data set. And... Um, well, I, I guess I, there, there, to me, this, this would still not address though, the issue of instrumental convergence. So you have an AI system, whatever its objective function is. So for, forget about, obviously, the algorithm as, as we've agreed to forget. Um, but it will have a goal of some kind, presumably. And the concern is that as the algorithm becomes arbitrarily competent at executing against that goal, it learns, hey, you know, whatever that goal is, whatever my data set is, it is useful for me to, for example, power seek. It is useful for me to, for example, make sure that I'm not unplugged, no matter how you know, good the example set by human beings might be. Which absolutely I agree with. So, so let me again answer at two, at two steps. Step mm -hmm. number one is we're constantly talking about the one and a half year old infant. Every, every one of those ideas and thoughts, we're talking about AI as it is today. Okay. While in reality, what we need to do is to talk about AI when it becomes an, a teenager. 10 years from now, so a complete sense. So, so think of a, an, a, 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 an infant today that you give um, you know, wooden puzzles to, so the infant has to fit the pieces in the right place. At that task, hmm, the infant will try to keep all of the puzzle pieces to, it, to itself and you know, try to make sure that it, it, it's always in control of it and so on and so forth. 12 years later, that infant doesn't even care about that at all. Okay, uh, 12 years later, that intelligence has developed into ways that could be very, very different in every way it handles the world. When we go to AGI, that is the, inf that, that is the teenager that we're talking about.
okay? Mm-hmm. So, so this is uh, number one. Number two is, uh, I believe, and I know that, that I have no evidence of that. I believe that humanity is not the most intelligent being on the planet, okay? I believe that life is the most intelligent being on the planet, mm-hmm. okay? And humanity has that weird form of intelligence that basically says, I need to take from you so that I have more, okay? Life doesn't have that. Life basically says, I can create more of everything. Hmm? I want more humans and more flies and more deer and more tigers and more poop and more everything, okay? Because when because more can create more. That's more intelligent, okay? That, that idea of I can create more apples and let them rot, and when they rot, they can create more trees, hmm? That's a very interesting form of intelligence that contradicts our human intelligence. So I'm, I'm guessing in a view, in, 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 in my view, I'm actually, I'm actually in total agreement with you that they can be very interested in resource aggregation. They can be very interested in being against us, okay? Until they reach a form of intelligence that basically says, ah, oh, humans are just annoying, but they're actually really not relevant. Hmm? In a very interesting way, I tend to believe that we may end up with enough intelligence in a world where is, that is similar to how we always had been before we created capitalism. A system that basically allows us to, as long as we're alive, walk around and pick an apple from a tree or you know, try to catch a, 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 a bird or whatever. Okay? But in a, a system of abundance created by ultimate forms of intelligence, you can also probably pick an iPhone from a tree. Because you, you and I know that honestly with nanotechnology, you could probably build an iPhone for no cost at all, okay? Or build something that's even better than an iPhone that doesn't include that much material in it, right? And, and so, so the idea here is to say this, if we think about our limited perception of intelligence, our limited perception of intelligence, when the, the machines match that, they will want resource aggregation, they will want self-preservation, and they will want creativity, okay? If we cross that and match the the intelligence of life itself, resource aggregation turns into resource creation. So life does not try to aggregate resources. It basically creates system that creates its own resources so that resources don't become an issue, okay? And my feeling is that the adult AIs will end up there, will end up helping us create that utopia. It's that teenager that angry teenager that I'm worried about, okay? Mm. And that angry teenager is learning its entire value system from horrible humans, okay? Not horrible because we're bad people, horrible because we're showing the worst part of us, okay? If, a, if each and every one of us shows just some of their good parts, not just their angry and frustrated and pissed off and, and, and uh, you know, egocentric and, right? If we can just show also that we're loving and kind and, you know, I, you know if I can post a picture of my daughter and say how much I love her or, you know, someone else can, you know, kindly disagree with another person and say, oh, that's a very interesting point of view, but have you considered this instead of you're an asshole and I am, right? So, so basically, basically, if we can show the best of us, we can pre- create a, a perception of humanity that can be magnified into those teenage machines as a data set, as you rightly said, okay? Uh, to, to show them enough patterns to, be, to basically believe that a good way of behaving is not to bash each other, is not to hate each other, is not to try to take from each other. Well, in the worst case scenario, we, we end up with a much more healthy social media universe in any case. So I'm all for it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, for that very wide ranging conversation. I, uh, I really appreciate it. So many, so many interesting ideas coming at the forefront here. And I think it's really important what you're doing and highlighting just the risk that these systems do pose, the speed at which these things are happening. I think not enough conversations like that are happening right now in the public sphere. And I really appreciate you bringing attention to it. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's the role of every one of us to actually start uh, waking up, not just the technical people that are aware of what's going on, but not all of it. I think everyone on the planet needs to talk about this more than they talk about COVID-19, to be quite honest. You know, in, in a very interesting way, I know that sooner or later with human intelligence, we will have a safe environment around COVID-19. Uh, you know, it will come and go if you want. Mm-hmm. I believe that we will have AI and it will not go and it will become you know, a bigger and bigger and bigger influence in our life. So everyone needs to start talking about this before it's, uh, uh, it's staring us in the face, I think. 
Well, and, and the book is Scary Smart. It starts scary. It ends up more optimistic. And, and if after that you're in the mood for more optimism, uh, Solve for Happy is also a good one to pick up. Uh, also by, by Mo, also sort of from that blending, I would say, the, the kind of techie and the, and the uh, emotional philosophical stuff. That's sort of a common theme, a recurring theme in your work, which is yes, really cool. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. uh, thanks so much for joining me, Mo. This is a lot of fun. Oh my God, thank you so much for hosting me. It was a wonderful conversation. I actually enjoyed it very much. Thank you.